Hi, I'm Pastor Colin Smith, Senior Pastor of The Orchard. We're a church that loves the Bible, and this podcast features sermons from pastors at each of our six locations. Our prayer is that these messages will help root you in the Word of God, nourish you in the Gospel of Christ, and help you to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Here's today's message. you please be seated? Oh, Father, as we come to your word today, we come as hungry people, famished people. And so we ask God that as we fill our vision with the Lord Jesus Christ, that over time and by degrees, you would conform us more into his image. We love you. Use your servant now and bless your word. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Well, our, um, our youngest son, we have three children, our youngest son, Haddon, uh, is named after one of my heroes of the faith, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon, if you don't know, was a pastor in England during the mid and late 19th century who loved Jesus and preached the gospel faithfully to the very end of his life in 1892. But in 1850, when he was just 15 years old, Spurgeon had not yet become a Christian. He had Christian parents and he had Christian grandparents who he loved very much, but for much of his earthly life, he had remained defiant and resisted the things of God. As Spurgeon himself actually, reflecting back on those early days, wrote this. He said, as long as ever I could, I rebelled and I revolted and I struggled against God. But on January 6th, in the year 1850, during a particularly heavy winter snowfall, Spurgeon went alone to a small Methodist chapel for church. It was very interesting. The main pastor actually didn't show up for the service. I'm assuming it was because of the heavy snowfall. So another man in the church stood up to offer a brief message from Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 22. In the King James Version, which is the translation that Spurgeon would have himself heard, the man read aloud these words from God. Look unto me. And be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. And it was during that sermon, expounded from that one text, that Spurgeon saw with great clarity the darkness of his own rebellion and the death that it deserved. And then he saw with great joy the Jesus who died to save him from his sin. And that day he believed. And the grace of faith, he says, was given to me in the self-same instant. Through Isaiah 45, Jesus himself was inviting and beckoning Spurgeon to look at him. 
And as the young Spurgeon looked at him, as he lifted his eyes to behold Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Savior of the world, his eyes were open, his heart was filled with joy, and he was given the gift of faith. Spurgeon believed and was saved. And from thereafter, of course, he was never the same. And yet that look of faith, January 6th, 1850, was not a sort of solitary look of faith. See, Spurgeon didn't sort of see the glory and the goodness and the grace of Jesus that snowy morning and then sort of never look on it again. No, looking unto Jesus, beholding Him in His Word and with the eyes of faith was Spurgeon's lifelong practice. It was for him not a sort of one-off activity, but a regular and repeated activity. The church, like Spurgeon, we're not meant to look on Christ once, believe And then seldom do it again. Now the Christian life is a life that is marked by looking at Him again and again and again and again. Of delighting and, let's be honest, even sometimes dragging our eyes to rejoice in the maker and defender of our salvation, the author and the perfecter of our faith. It is the regular and the repeated looking unto Jesus, beholding Him in the Bible and with the eyes of faith. It's that activity that's going to sustain you, Christian, over the course of your Christian life. See, doing this will, for example, grow you in godliness. This habit will do this to you. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, that as we behold, that is as we look, as we behold the glory of the Lord, we will be, he says, transformed into the same image. In other words, as we see Jesus, keep looking at Jesus, we will over time come to look a lot like Jesus. But take another example, looking at Christ, brothers and sisters, will also do this to you. It will also nurture you in your own humility. So when John, this is one of Jesus' disciples, saw Jesus alive and glorified while he was on the island of Patmos, he recounts himself in Revelation 1, that when he saw him, John writes, I fell at his feet as though I was dead. He was compelled to his knees and put his face in the dirt. And here's the thing, fixing your eyes on Christ will have something of the same humbling effect on you over the course of your life. But looking at Jesus will also help you persevere in difficulty. As we run the race of the Christian life, and we all know how hard that is. And how is it that we're supposed to endure? Keep going. Well, Pastor Colin teed us up so well last weekend because Hebrews 12 tells us we run with endurance by looking to Jesus. The Bible says. Christian, filling your vision with Christ will affect you. Will affect you. 
Looking at Him will comfort you when you're discouraged. Looking at Him will enliven you when you feel weak. It will encourage you when you feel afraid. It will refresh you when you've become jaded. Beholding the Lord Jesus will help to convict you in your sinning, fortify you in your suffering, and grounds you even when you're succeeding. Look, there is, in the whole of the universe, nothing better to look at than Jesus Christ. The layers of His goodness and His glory offer to us really a tireless succession of qualities to observe and to enjoy. Look, if every day we would do this, fill our sight with the person and the work of Jesus, I suppose, one author comments, that we would never tire ourselves. And I think I'd have to agree. So for the rest of our summer, over the next 10 weekends, that's what we're going to do, okay? We're going to together lift our eyes and very simply look at Jesus. The greatest subject that exists. And the way that we're going to do this over these 10 weeks is to observe Jesus as he is presented to us, particularly in the Gospels. That is in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And for each of these 10 weeks, we're going to look at one of his many different Titles, each of which will reveal to us something unique about him, a a facet of his character, a distinct aspect of his own work. So if you haven't already, would you please have your Bibles open? Even if all you got is a phone, go ahead, turn that on, swipe over there to Matthew and chapter 3, where we're going to begin this sermon series with a title of Jesus that is maybe his most recognizable. And that is his title as Son as son. And throughout the New Testament, the whole of the New Testament, Jesus is called a son. And that title is used to tell us a lot about him. Just three letters, one word. But sometimes this title is used to describe his divinity. Being called, for example, the son of God. He is, in other words, the one who has existed from before the foundation of the world and the one who single-handedly, right now, Colossians says, sustains the whole universe. But sometimes this title is used to describe his humanity. Being called, as another example, the son of man. He is the one who was born of Mary and Joseph, who grew up in Nazareth, who had friends, and who died on a cross. But throughout the Gospels, the title of son is also often used to signify his submission, to describe his humble reverence and his perfect obedience to the will of his Father in heaven. He is, the Bible tells us, the son who says what the Father has given him to say. That's in John in chapter 12 who carries out what the Father has given him to do, that's in John 14, and who always, the Bible says, does what is pleasing to his Father in heaven. That's in John 8. Sinless and blameless, unpretentious and unpresumptuous, Jesus is the submissive Son who is humble in reverence and who is perfect in his Obedience. Can I ask you, do you know anybody like that? 
You know anybody else like that? Have you ever seen anyone without sin? Have you ever met anyone who has no blemish? Look, here is the one who is wholly unique. I mean, we travel lots of miles to go see stuff that's a lot less unique than this. So what a worthy subject is Jesus for our own eyes. What an extraordinary object for our perpetual gaze. And it's here in Matthew 3, at the start of his earthly ministry, upon the banks of the Jordan River, that we're shown a picture of his obedience, the power he received for obedience, and the approval that he enjoyed on account of being the submissive and the obedient son of the Father. So lift your eyes with me as we begin this morning by looking first, got your Bibles open, at the picture of Christ's obedience. So take a look, if you would, with me. I want you to see it for yourself at verse 13. Okay, just follow along here. Then Jesus, Bible says, came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Verse 14, John, but John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? See, baptism, according to the New Testament, is a special symbol. It's an outward illustration. It's a public picture of our being washed, cleansed from the guilt and the punishment of sin. It's a very wonderful thing. But Jesus, obviously, Jesus had no sins from which to be washed or cleansed. I mean, John did, of course, but not Jesus. Jesus was perfect. Jesus never sinned, which is why John says what he does in verse 14. Jesus, why do you want to be baptized? I'm the one that should be baptized. Have you ever wondered that? Reading through the book of Matthew, like, what? why is Jesus getting baptized? This got weird. But look at how Jesus responds to John. Take a look there at verse 15. He says to him, let it be so now. Hey, we're going to do this. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all Righteousness. That was the reason that Jesus insisted on being baptized. It wasn't to illustrate his repentance. He didn't need to repent. It wasn't to demonstrate his need of forgiveness. He needed no forgiveness. He was baptized so that he might fulfill all righteousness. Which leads us, of course, to the inevitable question, well, okay, but what does that mean exactly? And his baptism fulfills all righteousness. And what in the world does that have to do with his obedience as God's son? Well, I think that something Jesus says later in the book of Luke will kind of, I think, help bring some clarity for us. And Luke Chapter 12 and verse 50, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, refers to his own death on the cross as a baptism. Isn't that interesting? That's the language he uses, the exact same word. He says to them, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress. You see, he's talking about his death until it is accomplished. So he's telling his disciples that he is going to be plunged into death, as it were. Willingly 
soaked in the sins of the world and submerged beneath the judgment of God so that he might secure salvation for all who put their faith in him. That's how he describes his own death on the cross in the book of Luke as a baptism. Which I think is really helpful then in understanding what's going on in our passage in Matthew and chapter 3. Here at the Jordan River, the water baptism of Jesus is not a picture of his sins being washed away. He didn't have any. No, his baptism here in the Jordan River is instead a picture of what he was going to do to wash our sins away. Look, this was a public illustration of his resolve to carry out in obedience the work that his father had given him to do, to die on a cross for the sins of the world. Despite the pain of it, the darkness of it, the suffering that would come with it, he was going to obey. He wasn't going to turn to the right or to the left. He would obey. He would be baptized into death so that we might be cleansed of our sins. You see, here in Matthew 3 is a wonderful picture of the Son who would steadily submit to the will of His Father, who would humble Himself, Philippians in chapter 2 tells us, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in so doing, He would then accomplish the work that He that had been prophesied that he would do, the work that God had given him to do, he would, as our text puts it, fulfill all righteousness. Isn't this remarkable? Just think about this for a second. Here, at the start of his earthly ministry, Jesus knew what was coming at the end of his earthly ministry. Betrayal and desertion, he knew it was coming. Mockery and lies, he knew it was coming. Hatred and shame. Nails and thorns, suffering and bleeding, crucifixion and death. And yet, and yet he faithfully endured it all anyway. He was baptized in the Jordan River to illustrate for us his willingness and his determination to three years later be baptized into death, to sink beneath its dark waters so that by faith you and I could be washed clean. So here in Matthew 3 is a clear picture of Christ, the obedient Son. The one who faithfully bowed to the will of the Father, even unto death. And yet here at his baptism, the Bible does not only offer to us a, a picture of his obedience. As marvelous and wonderful as that is, here at his baptism, the Son of God is given next the power for obedience. A picture He's given the power 
Take a look with me, if you would, at Matthew 3 in the next verse there, verse 16. The Bible says this, And when Jesus was baptized, he, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So here's the scene. Jesus is dropped beneath the river and then as John lifts him up out of it, heaven sort of cracks open and in the sight of everybody watching, here is the Spirit of God in the form of a dove that drifts down and then comes to rest on him. Now this is very, very significant. See What this scene is showing us In the Spirit resting on Jesus is Jesus receiving power for His earthly ministry. As Christians who love the Bible, we affirm that Jesus was, that He is both truly God and truly man. That the fullness of the deity, the Bible says, in him dwells bodily, and at the same time that the word really did become flesh and dwell among us. We, we hold both of these things together at this church, that Christ is truly God and that Christ is truly man. And part of what it means that Jesus was truly man is this, that he was dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit to obey God in his earthly life. See, There was, in other words, no sort of divine cheat code that made his obedience a cinch. See, he didn't sort of flick a switch and tap into his godness and make things easy when they got extra and especially hard. No, like us, as a true man, he was genuinely dependent on the Spirit's power to obey his Father at every single turn. A great English theologian, John Owen, says that the only immediate act of Christ's divine power on his human nature was when he first took on that human nature. Everything else, Owen says, every other application and demonstration of divine power in and through the humanity of Jesus was mediated through And provided by God, the Holy Spirit. So here's what this means. Just do a quick survey. It means that it was the Holy Spirit that strengthened Jesus to endure the temptation of the devil in the wilderness. The scene that comes right after his baptism. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that helped him there. This means that it was the Holy Spirit that gave Jesus the ability to cast out demons and heal the sick. How did Jesus do miracles? It was the power of the Holy Spirit. This means that it was the Holy Spirit who infused Jesus with the wisdom to rightly teach the truth. In his earthly life and ministry, it was the power of the Spirit that enabled him to bear patiently with his disciples, endure the mockery of his enemies, see into the hearts of men. You know, he does that a few times throughout the Gospels, walk in conformity to the Scriptures, and even to give his life on the cross. Here's what's wild. Think about this. In fact, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 9, and verse 14. This is what the Bible says. Listen to this. That it was 
through the eternal spirit that Jesus offered himself without blemish to God on the cross. You see what Hebrews is telling us, that even his obedience in death was done by his dependence on the Holy Spirit. That's remarkable. As a real human being, every single act of Christ's earthly obedience to his Father was at the same time an act of humble dependence on the Holy Spirit. Peter, one of his own disciples, uh, later, long after Jesus had died and risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, uh, Peter recounts in the book of Acts, In chapter 10, he's telling people how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Notice those two things come together. I love that. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Now we got to stop and ask, well, how was it that he could do all of those things? Peter says, look at this, for God was with him. You see, from his conception to his crucifixion, Jesus walked in perfect obedience only by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that here in our text, Matthew 3, visibly descends and rests on Him like a dove. Now church, just consider this for a minute. Does this not show you in a fresh way all of what we've just said? all that we've just observed, does this not show you in a fresh way how relatable Jesus is? He was a real man. Like you, he really was tempted. He really was tired. No cheat codes for him. He really felt the heat and hardship of walking in obedience in a sinful world, just like you do, just like I do. See, he knows what it's like to be hard-pressed towards sin and selfishness. He knows what it's like to need help and guidance. He knows what it is to be dependent in the Christian life. But does all this not also show you in a fresh way, not only how relatable Jesus is, But how wonderful Jesus is. I think for me anyway, this truth really puts into spectacular light the glory, really the reality of his obedience. I mean, you and I know firsthand the pressure of temptation. And you and I, of course, know firsthand how easy and how often we give in to it and disobey God. So should not our own firsthand experience compel us as people who fail so much to wonder and worship at the only one who never did? Answer is yes. But does all this not also remind you, Christian, not only of how relatable and wonderful Jesus is, but of how generous Jesus is. See, think about it. The scriptures make abundantly clear that the same Holy Spirit rested on Jesus at his baptism, the Spirit that empowered him for a life of humility and faithfulness and obedience to the Father, get this, is the exact same Holy Spirit that he has given to dwell inside of you, Christian. 
See, God wasn't only with Jesus, as Peter said in Acts 10. By His Spirit, brothers and sisters, God's with you. And He will help you obey. So I think that some of the reasons why we sometimes so easily give in to temptation and find ourselves caught up, again, in some kind of sin, is because we've forgotten what we've been given. It's like we've marched onto the battlefield of the Christian life and ignored our armor and sword. It's foolishness. But here's our encouragement today, church. That we've not been left to carry out the Christian life by the meager resources of our own strength. Isn't that a good comfort for you, for me? The same Spirit that helped Jesus obey will help you obey too. He'll help you when you feel the tug of anger. He'll help you when you feel drawn toward bitterness towards someone else. He'll help you when you feel tempted to dishonor your parents. When you feel tempted to belittle your spouse. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will help you when you feel tempted to vilify other people and exalt yourself and idolize your work and feed your lust and wound with your tongue. The Christian, here's the great encouragement. It's that you have not been left to your own powers to obey God's word. You've got the Spirit. The Bible promises that He is going to help you fight against temptation and that He is going to help produce godliness over time, by degrees, in your life. Of course, we've got to pause for a moment here and say that this, all of this doesn't mean that you and I will be perfect. Though Jesus is very wonderfully like us, real human being, there is one way in which he is not like us. He wasn't born into sin, which means that all of his temptations to be disobedient and to sin, all of his temptations came from outside of his human nature. Whereas ours originate from within us. See, we're inclined as people born into sin. We're inclined to sin and disobedience from our first breath. That's something that's just knit into our nature. For as long as we are on this planet, the remnants of our sinful flesh are going to kick and fight hard against the work of this Holy Spirit. And even though on this side of heaven, you and I will be far from flawless, The Holy Spirit has committed to helping you grow in holiness. I mean, this is just something that you know by personal experience. I don't got to convince you of this, Christian. Just take a second to think about your own Christian life. To be sure, you're not where you want to be. I mean, none of us are. But you're not where you used to be. You're not where you used to be. You've made progress. You've grown. If it's a foot or a mile, you've gone forward. Oh, you still sin, but by the grace of God, it is no longer joyful for you. Sin for you now, because you got the Holy Spirit. Sin has become bitter to you. And holiness has become sweet, worthy of pursuit for you. Friends, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. The one who strengthened Jesus, the Son, in His obedience, is the one who will, who has, who does, supply strength to you for that exact same purpose too. Here in Matthew chapter 3, 
We've observed in Christ, man, isn't he good? Goodness me. Observed in Christ a picture of his obedience that's in his baptism, a, the power that he received for his obedience that was through the Holy Spirit. And finally, we come to what I think is my favorite part of our passage in our text, and that is the approval of his obedience. A picture, power, and approval. Now, throughout the um, Old Testament, that is the, the time before Jesus came to earth, uh, Israel is God's chosen people had really gotten used to hearing from God through leaders, angels, prophets, sometimes even from his own mouth. God, over the course of their whole history, regularly revealed himself and spoke to them. It was a very wonderful gift of grace. But at the end of the Old Testament, God went silent. He stopped speaking. For 400 years... The world didn't hear a word from him until Matthew in chapter 3. Look with me at verse 17. Here at Christ's baptism, the sky is ripped open, the spirit descends, and then what happens? God speaks. Above the Jordan River, his voice thunders into the air. This, he says, is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is wonderful to me. Think about this. The last words that God had spoken 400 years before this in the book of Malachi were largely words of warning and judgment for a disobedient people. The Old Testament ends kind of on a sad and sour note. But here, breaking his silence, what resounds from his mouth are words of love and praise for his beloved son. Here in verse 17 is God's delight over Christ's willingness to carry out the work of salvation for sinners. Here in Matthew 3 is God's pleasure in Christ's qualifications to serve as the mediator between heaven and earth. And here in this one glorious silence-shattering sentence is God's approval of His Son's perfect obedience and the flawless righteousness with which he will live his earthly life and with which he will offer himself as a willing sacrifice for sin. They are the words that really signal the beginning of his faithful ministry and that even now hang as a banner over his head for all eternity. Trumpeted for everybody to hear on the banks of the Jordan, recorded here in the Bible for every future generation, including ours, and rejoiced over forever by the hosts of heaven. Here are words that are fitting for the Son who is humble in reverence. And perfect in his obedience. This is my beloved son, he says, with whom I am well pleased. But here's what's maybe the most astonishing thing about what we read here in verse 17. It's this. It's that if you, 
Christian brother, sister, have put your faith in Jesus for salvation from your sin, guess what? These are the same exact words that God says of you. See, the Bible tells us that when a sinner comes to faith in Jesus, a sort of exchange happens. He takes on their sin, and then they receive his righteousness. Though innocent, he willingly bears their guilt, and though guilty, they are credited his innocence. The Bible puts it this way in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. For our sake, the apostle Paul writes, he made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. Us The Christian, the death of Jesus on the cross, here's what that accomplished. It paid the penalty for your sins. And by faith, his life, his real and his perfectly obedient life is applied to you. And if his obedient life, his flawless righteousness, his pristine record never did anything wrong is applied to you, Well, then the delight and the pleasure and approval that God has for him, that's the same delight, pleasure, and approval that he has for you too. Brothers and sisters, only because of Jesus, the banner hanging over your head, a banner hanging over my head is forever a banner that is decorated with the words of Matthew 3. This is my beloved son, daughter, with whom I am well pleased. Now I wonder, how many of you upon reading verse 17 sort of internally wince? And maybe you have put your faith in Jesus and you know what the Bible says. You take God at his word. But you have a very difficult time believing this. You you just, you, you can't shake the disappointment that you are to God. You can't get rid of the judgment, the feelings of judgment that you know you deserve. You have perhaps come to view God as primarily a sort of gavel-wielding critic who is always disappointed in you and always ready and let's be happy to chastise you. Now to be sure, we got to be clear, God does not like sin. He doesn't turn a blind eye to it. He is displeased when we obey. But Christian, I need you to listen to this, that that does not change his affection for and his approval of all who belong to him. Christian, your right standing with God is not based on your Christian performance. Amen. None of us would stand if that were the case. No, your standing before God is based not on you. It's based on Christ and his perfect obedience. Despite all, I mean, our many failures and the hell that we know we deserve, 
Jesus has, by faith, removed from us the guilt of our sin, and then he has fully clothed us in his flawless righteousness, so that God can gladly say of you, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So brother, sister, when you're tempted to despair, of yourself, your weakness. I do, I do this. And when you are tempted to sort of skew the heart of God, to see Him in an incomplete way, lift your head and look to Jesus, the one who was plunged into death so that you would be washed clean. Rejoice and worship the perfectly obedient Son, let's pray. Oh God, I know that I'm not alone in feeling this week, even today, the reality of my own sin and my own deserving of judgment. But God, that is what makes the righteousness of Christ credited to us so much more sweet and wonderful. God, I pray for those who are believers, genuine believers here today. God, that you would encourage and comfort them as they look to the perfect obedience, the flawless righteousness of Jesus Christ. And God, I pray for those who are here today, perhaps joining us online, who do not believe. I pray, God, that they would look at Christ and see the impossible situation that they are in that they cannot please you, they cannot be saved by you, they cannot stand in right relationship with you, banking on their flawed, brittle goodness that they need Him. We pray, God, that you would perhaps even today draw some to faith in this perfectly obedient Son, in whose name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to the Orchard Sermon Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please subscribe, become a regular listener, and share the link with others. And if you're in the northwest suburbs of Chicago, we'd love to welcome you as our guest at one of the Orchard's six locations. For more information, go to theorchard.church. That's theorchard.church.